Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. I grew up in Maine, or going to Maine in the summers. And sometimes on evenings when the tide was on the way in and it had been stormy, my family would get in the Buick station wagon and we would go to a place in Acadia National Park called Thunderhole. This was a granite cave on the coast where if conditions were right, the sea would surge in and spray up 40 feet and make a deep thunderous sound. It was absolutely terrifying. My mother and father would stand there with us, tightly holding our hands, and we would behold the sublime. That strange mixture of vastness, of devastating power, of magnificence that was, well, both appalling and strangely uplifting. This idea of the sublime encountered in nature is explored in the Turner exhibit that finally opened at the Frist. Richard and I went this past Tuesday and I highly recommend going. They figured out great protocols uh, that make you feel quite safe and that allow you to feel like you're the only person in the gallery looking at the Turner exhibit. Turner was a landscape painter of the 18th century, actually turn of the century, who explores vistas of plummeting ravines and gorgeous luminous mists and stormy seas. He painted the flood, the original one, and the morning after the flood. His subject matter is not something as tame and approachable as the beautiful. It is a wild exploration of the mystery that holds the tension of judgment, death, life, and glory. As I was reading about Turner and his representation of the sublime, I came across the commentary of Edmund Burke, a contemporary of Turner's and a statesman and a philosopher. Unlike many of his colleagues who were deists, and we remember deists uh, believed that there was a god, but uh, he was not a personal god. He had sort of, he was the creator god, but he'd sort of tuned out after creation and, uh, and went on vacation somewhere. But Edmund Burke believed in a personal God who overcame sin and death by sending his son Jesus into the world to atone for it. And Edmund Burke understood the strange, uplifting power of the sublime to derive from that very great salvific mystery. That the God who created all and is sovereign over all has battled the devil and won. In summary, Burke states that our experience of the sublime is rooted emotionally in fear, particularly fear of death. There you are, standing before El Capitan. You see that huge precipice. Your knees get rubbery uh, just because of the sheer magnitude and your smallness. The visual subject matter that calls up this emotional experience is, of course, the vast. Depictions of sea, of cliffs, plunging valleys, the starry expanse. And this produces, 
he says, a tension in our nerves. The rubbery knees, the fluttering heart as we gaze at Niagara. But he says the ultimate cause of the experience of the sublime as a positive one is God having created and battled Satan and won. That's worth contemplating. That the reason behind our ability to be drawn in by such fearful, terrible imagery is that creation and salvation itself involves this. That God who created all and is sovereign over all has battled the devil and won. That is somehow being referred to by these experiences of the sublime, and it is what lends them credibility and even a moral quality. Now, some of you may be thinking, that's all very informative, Marjorie, but when are you going to get to that dreadful story we just heard from Genesis where Abraham was tested by God? When he was told to sacrifice his only beloved son, Isaac, off in the land of Moriah. Well, I'm getting to that now, but I wanted us to begin by acknowledging that there is a mystery which we know that encompasses both the terrible and the glorious. And much as we might or I might want to just edit out the terrible part, that would be the part in the story where God commands Abraham to sacrifice a child. And by the way, the Bible condemns this practice throughout. God identified the Canaanites as having that practice, and he specifically said that his people were never to do that. And in fact, later on in Kings, when one of the kings does sacrifice a child, God condemns it as an abomination. As much as it is tempting to dismiss this part of the story, or maybe even the Old Testament altogether, we cannot and still call ourselves Christian. We must read the story as it is, standing in the disturbing mystery, and see what God has for us in it. The first thing that is important to notice is that this story does not stand alone. Hebrew narrative is very intentional in the way it puts information together. In chapter 21, we read about another child in the desert with a parent standing by worried about survival. It was the child Ishmael and his mother Hagar. Remember how when Sarah and Abraham had been told that they would have a child, it was taking rather a long time and Sarah said, the way that we were really gonna make this happen, Abraham, is to use my maid, Hagar, to be a surrogate mother. Well, Hagar did conceive and bore a child, Ishmael, which, as you can imagine, was quite complicated and put some tension on the family, which only increased when later Sarah actually did conceive herself and gave birth to Isaac, the child who was promised. Sarah became jealous and sent Hagar and Ishmael into the desert of Beersheba. After the mother and child finish the little water that was provided them, Hagar despairs. She moves away so she will not see what happens to her son. But God hears the voice of the boy, and an angel instructs Hagar that not only will her son live, he will become the father of a great nation. Life 
out of death. A well appears in the wilderness, and mother and child are saved. A future and a blessing, despite Abraham and Sarah's disobedience. That pattern is the background when a paragraph later, we read about Abraham and Isaac. Another situation of life and death in the wilderness. There is Abraham ready to take the life of his beloved son, the one promised by God, but he is stopped by an angel's voice who says that his son is spared. Do not lay a hand on the boy. God will provide the ram. Life out of death. A ram appears in the thicket, and father and son are saved. A future and a blessing. This time, it's Abraham's obedience that is mentioned, as well as his faith. New Testament scholars see Abraham's comment to the two servants, and you can look at this in your leaflet. The boy and I will go over there, and we will worship, and then we will come back to you as an indication that Abraham never doubted in the mystery that God ultimately would save his promised son. Christians read this story in light of a third story. We read it as the background to what Jesus is doing on the cross. John, remember, looked at Jesus and recognizes him as the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. He points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It can be hard to understand how we apply a passage like Genesis 22. Clearly, we don't read it as a moral lesson that we should emulate. God will not ask any of us to go to Mount Moriah. Although parents who have lost a child have experienced a trial with God that shares some of the profound mystery of this event. We might then ask, how does Genesis 22 inform our faith and our love? The most basic answer comes from the Apostle Paul, who says in 2 Corinthians, that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God told Abraham to spare his son because he would provide the lamb. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, who unlike Isaac, had the full freedom of his divine status to choose participation in the wild salvation plan of the Holy Trinity. And that yes, that promised fulfillment applies if you want it to, directly to you. Has there been a lamb provided for you? Yes, in, in Jesus. Are you wondering if God truly loves you, has accepted you, forgiven you, and looks with favor upon you? Yes, we're on TV. Yes, 
in Jesus. Are you wondering if God will direct your path and show you a good way forward that will bless you and your relationships and bring restoration to creation, even to this country, even to our cities, even to Nashville? Yes, in Jesus. Are you wondering if there is life for you beyond the grave? And I mean interesting, beautiful, relationship-rich life. Yes, in Jesus. Amen. If you've not quite gotten around to thanking Jesus for his life given on your behalf, today might be the day. Today might be the day to accept the gift of life offered. This well provided in the desert. This lamb in the thicket. This savior on a cross. This resurrected Lord who reigns in glory. When we stand before the revelation of scripture, the full revelation of scripture, and the full tapestry of our own lives, we perceive both the swirl of terrible darkness and the radiant light of a glory that is inaccessible, hid from our eyes. But God has won. And if you want, you can receive this gift of his son, which is yes to the most wonderful promise that we could ever have imagined. A promise of gracious, eternal, life-giving, loving relationship.